Hello everyone, I am so glad to be back with you. After all the excitement of last week, it feels like so much has happened and a fair bit of time has passed. For those that aren't familiar with the show, this is Talk Raising to Me with Naomi and I am your host, Naomi Tucker. Last week was quite the week of international racing. Royal Ascot, the Belmont Stakes with its top quality undercard. So today I bring you Sakatoga Stable, Jack Knowlton on their Belmont Stakes winner, Tis the Law, the moment when he passed the wire, the build-up, and what's in store for the future. You're going to hear it all right here. In addition, I will give a few personal Royal Ascot highlights before concluding this week's show with a lighter segment on an organization called Thoroughbred Resource Placement, run by Kimberly Godwin-Clark in Maryland. It's quite the story, she and her thoroughbred fellow, whose race name was Mystical Harbor, are the only ones I ever heard of to have achieved pre-St. George international dressage level. It's an incredible feat with a horse in its own right. Normally, warm bloods are used for dressage and they're going to be the main breed to do this. But to do this with a thoroughbred that's had a racing career is something that I really wanted to bring to you all. I wanted to highlight their story and how difficult it is to achieve such a level. Of course, there is tons of podcast gold to be found on the In The Money Media Network. As always, the Matt Bernier Show, JK Plus One, the flagship In The Money shows, and so much more. So head over to the In The Money Media Network, wherever you get your podcasts from, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, subscribe, like, comment, interact. We really enjoy hearing from you all. But if you only listen to one thing this week, listen to the emergency episode of PTF and JK. If you want to know what is important to us in this sport and on this network, that is a really good place to start. And I've said this before, I am aware that you guys aren't here for my political opinion, but guess what? I have one. I wouldn't really call it a political opinion though. I would like to coin it as having empathy and respect for others, no matter where they're from, what they look like, what their sexual preferences are, and any other denominator that people enjoy using to separate us. Diversity is a good thing and is needed within our sport. And I'm very much looking forward to promoting that change and listening to those with experience on that front as to how we can make this happen. Let's get back to horse racing. The weight is temporarily off the shoulders of Barclay Tag as heavy favorite Tis the Law put away the competition with ease in Saturday's Belmont Stakes. I got the chance to speak with owner Jack Knowlton of Sakatoga Stable on what it means to them to finally have won all three races, albeit with different horses. They were part of Funny Side's Triple Crown bid in 2003 when he was not able to secure the final leg. Let's head over to Jack, but be mindful. We were on a phone connection and hence the quality might not have been as good as when I normally use Skype or Zencaster, but nonetheless, I'm so, so excited to bring to you Jack Knowlton. First of all, how are you doing? Has Tiz the Laws win in the 152nd Belmont Stakes sunk in India? Uh, Tiz, Tiz uh, came out of the race great. Uh, we are, you know, in the, in the glow of, uh, you know, winning a, a classic race at Belmont and, uh, you know, having all the, the media, uh, wanting to, you know, do some stories and, uh, doing the in- interviews. And I just had a photo shoot this morning for Blood Horse and the New York, uh, thoroughbred, uh, folks. So it's, uh. 140 texts yesterday to uh, respond to, but it's, it's all fun. It's great. That sounds phenomenal. Are you enjoying the atmosphere now that the race is over? That is it a weight of your shoulder in a way? It is. Uh, you know, we certainly have believed in, in Tiz since he broke his maiden at Saratoga last summer, but, you know, in this kind of crazy year that we're in having, 
you know, 11 weeks from uh, his last race. He was primed for a five-week uh, wait to, to go to Kentucky the first Saturday in May. Obviously, that didn't happen. And I think, you know, everybody, uh, you know, looked at uh, that kind of a break and wondered, you know, as good a trainer as Barkley is, you know, is it possible for him to keep the source on, you know, the the top of his game uh, off that long of a break? And uh, and I think, you know, it was shown on uh, Saturday that, uh, you know, he didn't skip a beat and uh, ran the same kind of race he ran in Florida. It's indeed very hard to keep these thoroughbreds sound for that long. And do you feel like this year's Triple Crown hence might actually be more tricky to achieve because of the spacing of the races being so much longer than normal? I think there's really a case to be made for that because, uh, you know, we're looking now having uh, a horse that uh, won the first leg of a, you know, new Triple Crown this year uh, on the 20th of June, and it won't wrap up until the, third of October. So in the between, we're going to plan on running into Travers. So there'll be a a seven week break into his next race. And then four weeks into the Derby and four weeks into the Preakness. So, I mean, I, I think that, uh, you know, having gone through this once with funny side, having your horse sharp, uh, for five weeks is obviously a challenge, but, having a horse sharp for as long as Barkley's being asked to, to do now probably is even a more difficult challenge. And in many ways, you know, the races are going to be different. You're going to have different horses that wouldn't have been in a five-week triple crown run. We may not even know some of the horses today that are going to show up in the Derby and or the Preakness. Yeah, a lot of unknowns indeed. Do you think Tis the Law has what it takes to complete a sort of different triple crown version, including a Travers. I think we have to coin a new term for that. I'm not sure what yet, but do, do you think he's up to the challenge? Well, you know, everything he's shown us so far would say that uh, he has, you know, a, a real opportunity. Um, of course, none of these horses have run a mile and a quarter yet. Usually the first time that we find out if they can do it is the first Saturday in May. Uh, in this case, it's... Uh, going to be the second Saturday in August in the Travers that uh, will be the first mile and a quarter race, I believe, that any of the you know, potential uh, horses in the Kentucky Derby are going to run in. So we're going to know more clearly from you know his performance in the mile and eighth Florida Derby, the mile and eighth Belmont this year. He certainly appears to be a horse that will relish the mile and a quarter. His breeding uh, particularly on the, the dam side that it is now would tell us that uh, you should be able to get the distance. So we're, uh, we're hopeful and we uh, don't have any reason to think that he can't do that. And, you know, it's, uh, you know, going to be, uh, you know, asking him to be able to, you know, win two mile and a quarter races and a mile and three sixteenths races in a period of less than two months. But, we haven't raced them, you know, that much early this year. We did that purposely. We were looking at the, the gauntlet of the five weeks of the normal Triple Crown, and that was really what we planned for. Yeah, I guess none of us planned for any of this to happen in terms of the rescheduling of all the races and the pandemic that we find ourselves in. But going back to his Belmont victory, his gallop certainly was very strong and might hint at him being strong again over a mile and a quarter but of course very much looking forward to seeing him in the Travers I'll be up there so I can't wait to see how he will fare but let's revisit the experience of the race itself on Saturday I saw some footage that you had a watch party I do believe was it in Saratoga that you had a a fair few of your friends yeah one of our partners uh, in Tizalaw is uh, Bruce Cerrone and he's the owner of Pinnell's Restaurant an Italian restaurant, uh, not too far from the track, but uh, has been in his family since 1922. And he put a tent up uh, outside because we have a limitation that uh, indoor dining, they can only have 50% of the tables filled now because of the social distancing requirements. So Bruce uh, had a tent uh, 
up that he's going to use for some of his dining, and we were fortunate enough to be able to make use of that on Saturday. It looked like quite a party afterwards, but what was the atmosphere like before the race? Uh, everybody was just enjoying the opportunity to be together. Uh, you know, the last race that we had, everybody was on their own, isolated uh, wherever they were, and we weren't able to be together. So obviously we would have preferred to have our whole crew, which would have been probably, you know, 70 uh, or so strong, which is what we had for the Holy Bowl in Florida before the pandemic hit. But, uh, you know, absent being able to be at uh, Belmont on Saturday, at least having better than half of our owners group at Saratoga, being at Pinnell's, being together and enjoying the victory, that uh, that was tremendous uh, as a second option. Well, it looked very special indeed. What was going through your mind during that final furlong of the race when he was sort of clearing away from the field? Well, it was, uh, you know, tremendous excitement. Uh, you know, obviously winning that race is uh, a huge deal for uh, everybody that uh, is involved. And uh, I'm particularly pleased for Barkley and Robin. They work so hard. They're so dedicated. He doesn't get a lot of big horses. He doesn't get the credit that I think he should get for being a top-notch trainer. So I felt very, very good for them. Uh, we've got a a lot of new people uh, involved in Tesla, along with a lot of people that have been with me for many years in Sacatoga. Only one other person that uh, was on the funny side run. So this is new for, for all these people. And to, to see how excited they are uh, to win a race like this is, is just so rewarding and uh, such a great feeling. And in the back of my mind, uh, you know, I wanted them to, to win it as well because I knew the next seven weeks now, the build up to Travis is going to be great in a year that uh, is just, you know, so upside down. Hopefully that uh, is going to be a positive thing for Saratoga. Do you feel this horse provides a bit of comfort and distraction to everyone involved during these challenging times? Well, I really do. And, uh, you know, as, as much as, uh, you know, Funny Side became kind of a, I guess, a national hero, I'll call him, because I believe that's what he really was. There seems to uh, to be, you know, some indication that, uh, you know, there's a, there's a real buzz now that uh, is being created by this horse. And uh, some of it is, I think, you know, the, the people remember, uh, you know, the guys from Sacatoga Stable in the yellow school bus that went to the Derby and... Uh, you know, all the fun that we had on our Triple Crown run. We can, you know, keep this alive now until, uh, you know, the, the next race now is uh, going to be the 5th of September. So we're the only one left. I mean, nobody else has got a shot to win the Triple Crown this year. And horse racing, I think, has a more prominent place in, you know, the sports world than it's ever had before just because it's really the only sport that's going live. I guess NASCAR you would consider, but nobody else. So, uh Hopefully it will, you know, be a positive thing for thoroughbred racing. We uh, love to have the opportunity to, for a while anyway, uh, again be the face of uh, thoroughbred racing in this country. Well, you're very right there. You're the only one left on the Triple Crown Trail. And as you mentioned, you're embarking on this journey again. You've you've experienced this before with Funny Side in 2003. How does this horse and these feelings compare to that period uh, 17 years ago? Well, I mean, uh, we we were, you know, obviously pretty amazed to, to win the Kentucky Derby, the biggest race in the world with uh, Funny Sight. He didn't have a lot of respect. He paid $27 in change uh, then. Uh, he had won... You know, three New York bred races as a two-year-old. Didn't win any of the three prep races, although he ran very well, particularly in uh, the Louisiana Derby and the Wood Memorial. Um, but he wasn't, you know, because he was a gelding, because he was a New York bred, because nobody really heard a lot about Barkley Tag unless we were really deeply involved in thoroughbred racing. Uh, the run-up to the Derby wasn't that big. Here... I mean, I spent 
you know, five hours with in two different uh, occasions with the NBC sports team doing interviews up here to, you know, include uh, my family story into uh, the race along with the, uh, you know, the horse and, and Barclay and Robin. So from that perspective, uh, you know, we're kind of in the eye of the hurricane right from the get go because of the tremendous success that, uh, that Tiz has already had. The other big thing that uh, is different is social media. Uh, there wasn't any social media back in 2003 to speak of. And, uh, and now it, it is just incredible with, uh, you know, with Twitter, with Facebook and all the different opportunities to be involved in social media and, and having everybody in the world, uh, you know, looking at, uh, you know, everything you do or don't do, uh, it, a, it's a different world, but uh, you know we're we're happy participants. I've got a couple of great people. Uh, my partner Ed Mitchin, finger paint marketing, and Rachel Dunn, who's one of our partners. That uh, they're considerably younger than I am, and they uh, make sure that everything that needs to get done gets done. Because you mentioned that you're one of two of the original partners involved in Funny Side that are now embarking on this new ride. With Tis the Law, how many new people have gotten involved with Tis the Law? You said there's a fair few uh, new partners, which is obviously phenomenal news for what Sakatoga Stable is doing. Well, we've probably got uh, you know at least uh, half a dozen people that uh, you know are involved in in this horse that hadn't been involved previously in Sakatoga horses, so. They uh, they got very very fortunate to uh, kind of get in on the on the ground floor with a with a horse that uh, you know has taken us places that uh, none of us ever thought that uh, we'd be able to go. Uh, I I certainly never had any anticipation that we would get another horse that uh, would carry us on the, on a national stage that would you know be able to to win a, a classic race. And then when you, you know, think about uh, the fact that here we are now, the only, you know, horse with the potential to, uh, you know, win a triple crown, it's, uh, you know, beyond exciting. Does it also make it extra special that during all these extra circumstances, everything that happened in New York over the last few months, does it make it, it, different because Tis the Law is a New York bed and, and you know, Barclays from New York and you're New York based. Does it feel like it's extra special because of, you know, that sort of home advantage and the roots that everyone involved has here? Well, it is. And, uh, you know, we have a lot of our ownership group is in, in New York, uh, you know, quite a bit of it locally, but being able to, to win the, really the two biggest races in New York as a two-year-old, he won the Champagne Stakes, which arguably, other than the Breeders' Cup Juvenile, is the most important two-year-old race in the country. And then to win the, the, the Classic, the, the Belmont Stakes, uh, as a New York bred, the first New York bred, and I believe it's 138 years to, to do that, it just makes us feel wonderful. And we, you know, for a while, uh, with Funnyside, clearly we're the face of the New York bred program. He's still... You know, even though he's now the second leading money earner in the New York bread program, he's certainly the most accomplished having won the Derby, which no other New York bread has done. Now, uh, Tizala comes along and, uh, you know, we completed the, the Sacatoga stable and the Barclay tag, uh, triple crown by winning the Belmont. And, uh, I think the, you know, the number of trainers, the number of owners that, uh, can, you know, say that they've accomplished that is, uh, is, is, pretty few and far between it truly must mean so much to you and Sakatoba as well as to Barkley Tag and his entire team could you elaborate a little bit about the relationship you and Sakatoba stable has with trainer Barkley Tag and how it's developed well we uh, a long long time ago about 25 years ago took uh, a couple of horses that we had uh, with another trainer that uh, you know, we're not uh, being very successful, and that trainer wasn't being very successful. Uh, one of my former partners, uh, Gus Williams, and I 
talked about, you know, we really need to, you know, find a, an alternative if we're going to stay in this game. And uh, we picked out three ter- trainers in the New York circuit that we thought, uh, you know, might fit the bill for Sacatoga. And one of them, uh, I made phone calls. One of them didn't return a call. The second one thanked us for calling, but said he was full. And Barkley said, I've got uh, two stalls that uh, are open at Belmont uh, and I'll take your horses. And that was the beginning of, uh, you know, what turned out to be a, uh, a magical ride with funny side. He identified funny side that, uh, Tony Everard's new episode training center in Ocala in, uh, um, in December of, uh, of his, you know, first year. And when he turned two, he also saw him down there in January and February and advised us that, uh, you know, I thought that it was a horse that uh, we should seriously consider buying. And we really didn't have money at Sacatoga to do it, but we were fortunate. Uh, there was a, a mayor that uh, was a turf mayor that Barkley had advised us to buy from one of his other owners who didn't want to take her to Florida. So we did that, and she was in a $62,500 claiming race. She got claimed. She ran second in that race. All of a sudden, we had the seventy-five thousand dollars that we needed to uh, buy Funnyside. So then we, you know, got on the magical ride with uh, with Funnyside that lasted, you know, from two thousand two until two thousand and seven. Uh, and you know, we've had some some decent horses. Bad luck with a couple of horses that you know were stakes quality horses that. Uh, ended up injured that, uh, you know, didn't allow them to go on and, uh, and really perform in stakes. And we have discontinued our model. We've, uh, you know, bought one or two horses a year, only New York breads, usually at the Fazzy Tipton New York bread yearling sale in, in August up here in Saratoga. And, you know, we got tis now. And uh, Barkley and I have a good relationship, uh, you know, probably 90, 95 percent or more of the decisions with regard to racing i uh, just follow his lead he and robin smullen are our bloodstock advisors we go to the sales you know i go through the catalog and we work together talking about you know what horses we think that uh, we'd like and uh, and how much uh, we think we'll be willing to spend but we're uh, you know we're a small operation we four horses just bought two in ocala so we're uh, we're going to grow a little bit. There's an awful lot of interest with the success of Tiz, so uh, we're going to even get uh, a bit bigger and uh, have some new partners in and continue to uh, support Barkley. Well, they always say it's a numbers game in horse racing. You want to have enough numbers that you hope to find the next champion. So to be able to get on this ride with a stable that's only have has about four horses or buys one or two a year it's just an extraordinary story and jack thank you so much for taking the time out to have a chat with me i really wish you and the entire sakatoga stable team and of course barkley tag and his team the best of luck in the weeks to come we're all very excited to see him reappear at saratoga at the spa hopefully we might be able to get some owners in at that point. I'm obviously not entirely certain what will happen, but that would be a great comfort, wouldn't it? If you'd be able to, yeah. at Saratoga, where you're from, see Tis the Law run in the Travers. Absolutely. I know that, uh, you know, that's what Naira is, is working very, very hard to accomplish. And we certainly hope that, uh, you know, the discussions with, with them and the state of New York and local health officials move forward and we're able to do that in Saratoga. Well, it'd be wonderful to see you again there as well. Thank you so much for your time, Jack. Oh, you're more than welcome. Great talking to you. Take care. Can't wait to see Tis the Law in the Travers, as of course we're all still wondering how Saratoga is going to look like this year. Are we going to have a couple of owners that will be able to attend the races? I do know most likely we'll not get the spectators, so it's going to be different. I'm still looking forward to seeing these incredible horses compete, but unfortunately it won't have the same atmosphere like normal, but that is a theme that we're going to see throughout the year. It will just continue like we had Royal Ascot without attendance, which was very odd to say the least. 
So getting back to what happened in horse racing over the last week, my fellow colleagues on this network have already dived deep into dissecting the performances last Saturday. So all I'm going to say is that Gamin broke the TV screen. Gamin won the Grade 1 Long Jean Acorn Stakes by about 18 and 3 quarter lengths, earning 110 buyer, 10 points more than the Belmont Stakes winning effort of Tis the Law. So on paper, she, she ran the lights out. I saw the aerial shot as provided by NBC Sports, and even without the crowd being there, seeing her clear away from her rivals in front of, a, of that huge Belmont grandstand gave me chills. All of us were watching this just going absolutely mad by the margin that she was kicking away from her rivals. The most impressive performance for me from overseas at Royal Ascot was Stradivarius's third consecutive Gold Cup win. On soft ground, that was not his preference. Over two and a half miles, it was a 10-length procession. He buried them. He's a six-year-old son of Cedar Stars, arguably England's favourite trainer and jockey partnership in John Gosden and Frankie de Torre. It was something to behold. There were doubters, there was worries, and this horse just proved them all wrong. And it's such a grueling trip. This is a distance that we will never see here in the US as a flat race. And it's not a distance that is commonly run in the UK either because it's so long. I mean, you have bumpers, which is flat races for jumpers, normally over those kind of distances, but like an out and out flat stairs race like this, that is, you know, they don't come along that often. And of course, Shadavari's third time Gold Cup win is absolutely phenomenal. And then on a personal level, Battlegrounds Chesham Stakes win on the Thursday over seven furlongs really made my heart jump a little. This Tyrol Colt by Warfront is the first fall out of Pre the Lark de Triumph winner and Breeders' Cup Turf winner found, who I followed throughout her racing career. She was racing when I just got into uh, horse racing photography. So I have plenty of pictures of her. I, I was just in awe of her. I adored her. And then I got the chance to see her in the US in Kentucky when she was pregnant with her first fall. I was pretty starstruck at the time not going to lie so this yeah this was special so moving on to the next part of today's show I want to share something different with you all this week a visit to Kimberly Gotwin's Clark Farm trainer and executive director of thoroughbred placement resources in Maryland she's the only one that I know of that has achieved pre-Saint George level with a thoroughbred in dressage and why is this important? Well, this is in a way an homage to the versatility of thoroughbreds, of what people are doing with horses, with these horses once they go away from the track. The success stories, but also the difficulty involved and the money needed to rehome and retrain these racehorses. But most of all, it's just a wonderful story. Kim was an exercise rider herself, having about 30 years of experience riding thoroughbreds on the track. And a quick note before we start, um, we discussed one of the ponies in the field, well, ex-racehorses, as an old veteran called Punky, who was a faithful track pony after retiring from his career as a racehorse. He was called Dancing Spunky on the track. He unfortunately passed away uh, earlier this week, so I thought I'd pass that along too, but... Also, quick info, Kim has retrained in place over hundreds of thoroughbreds. And you can also give me some grief over the audio quality, and I promise I will rethink getting a proper lav mic to use when going around farms and being outside, because there is a lot of noise going on. That continuous buzz are the fans inside the barn, and you hear whinnying, and we have the dog barking, and then there's a helicopter flying over. But you know what? You're right there with us. Well people have a preconceived notion of thoroughbreds they want to call them crazy and they're not they're not even at the racetrack crazy they're just wound up so that they can do a job being a racehorse um fellow is is schooling intermediary he hasn't competed at it he's actually ready to compete but he hasn't competed at it because of the coronavirus thing but he um 
it's very easy for him. He is unbelievably crazy talented, um, very generous, which is a thoroughbred trait. He, he, when I train him, I don't really have to dig anything out of him. What I have to do is be careful. I don't ask for too many things because he never says no. He never says no. And um, it's a great problem to have. And just, I am 100% a thoroughbred person, although I love all horses, but I have my USDF silver medal. And when I got into this, I didn't know what that was, but it does help give you credibility, um, which is important. And um, especially with a thoroughbred, but the, the neat thing about him is I have two friends that are still trying to get their USDF silver medal. So what is a USDF silver medal? You get it for getting scores at fourth level and pre-St. George. And pre-St. George is the first level of international dressage. Um, you have to have two scores at fourth level at 60% and I'm going to cry. And two scores at pre-St. George. And... When he moved up to pre-St. George in the fall, everybody was telling me how difficult it was, and I thought, I'll get it out of the way. I, I did not have competitiveness or scores in mind. I just had give him a really good trip, and then we'll work out the bugs over the winter. We always improve. And he just went down there and got both the scores. In, in one show, in two classes, he has competed at pre-St. George twice, and he got both scores. And I have two friends on not thoroughbreds, and they've been trying for over two years to get their um, silver medal scores. It is difficult. And, I mean, you just think how generous and, and, and how giving the, these horses are. And it will get you in trouble because you've got to be more accurate. If they're dialed in to what you're looking for, then you can't make mistakes because they try to do that too, whatever it is. Um, so... Maybe you have to ride better in that regard, but I don't have to dig stuff out of him. He's readily there. He's given me all he's got. And that's, that is a thoroughbred and a racehorse trait. They're bred to give you all they've got. I mean, it's, it's an amazing thing, you know, and it's a gift. Um, but there is a perception, a, a preconceived notion that thoroughbreds can't compete at upper levels. And I'm not talking just about dressage. He is in dressage. I get him here. I evaluate him on what they want to do, what I think their best purpose is, and then I train them for that. And I actually love dressage for communicating to the horse and developing the horse into a riding horse, giving him the skills, but never had any, any desire to, to ride at the upper levels of dressage. But I go where they want to go. And so he just went and kept on going. We got really good help, and um, I work with really top people so that they get exposure to thoroughbreds doing well, but also the people they work with get exposure to thoroughbreds doing well. And it's really important, and it's something that's not getting enough focus because it will increase their value. Right now, they don't have the value. You, it, it's not worth it to train them to the, to the level he's at because he's worth half as much. And it truly is a nonprofit venture to train a horse to this level because you can't sell him for anywhere close to what you have in him. Whereas if he was a warm blood, yeah, he would be much easier yeah. to sell. Yeah, he'd right? be worth about twice as much and much easier to sell. You say thoroughbred, and it's not just in dressage, but I think dressage is maybe the last ones to come over to the to really consider thoroughbreds. At least that's my perception. The top people love them, but the top people in eventing love them. The top people in show jumping and hunters love them. I work with Joe Farges, loves thoroughbreds, of course. Um, Stephen Bradley I've worked with, Elizabeth Madliner, Linda Zhang, Wofford. Um, they all love the thoroughbreds. But you see mostly riding with them warm bloods and warm blood crosses you don't see thoroughbreds and if you see thoroughbreds they're usually at the lower levels and my message is it's not because of the thoroughbreds it's because they're not getting the training to demonstrate their incredible athleticism generosity and elegance I mean this horse if you if he came in the ring you could be at a show this has happened and you're watching all the warm bloods and they're magnificent they're wonderful 
but he comes up the center line, people stop what they're doing. He's elegant, he's beautiful, he's generous, and he's got the movement. You know, he can do it. So, you know, we need to find a way, I don't know what the answer is, to develop more and get them into the hands of top people because the really top people like the Ann Krasinski's of the world, they're not going to go to the racetrack and shop for a thoroughbred. They, they need, the horse needs to have a great amount of training before they're going to consider it. They don't have time. And their clients aren't looking for totally green horses. Their clients want to go out and, you know, do big fences and jump. And, and so they need to get enough good training to get there. And amateurs, God bless them, because there's so many thoroughbreds, they are not going to do that. You know, they need quality training. It costs money. It's painstaking. It takes a lot of time, patience. And the way that I've learned to do it is by working with top people. And that is not cheap. And we're going to thank my husband for that because he pays for it. Yeah, because you also run the non-profit and basically great homing of race breed training. How is that funded or how are you making that work? When I first got into it, I was still galloping horses, and I had a gray mare that you'll meet today, um, Cloud's Honor, and she made 85000 which is not a ton of money, but it started TPR. It paid for it, and I had the time to rehome horses. That was before it was popular to do so. There were a few, there were a few rescues that, that found horses' homes, but it was, it was more a private thing, and... and then the TAA came along and started funding, and then we got a lot more. And I shifted my focus to horses that got into the hands of somebody that they didn't know what they were doing, and now the horse was a problem horse. And just needed, now it needed somebody that knew how to ride, and I galloped at the racetrack for 30 years to fix it. It wasn't the Did horse's fault. Um, Ann Merriman taught me, she took me to the racetrack. Um, her cousin Johnny Bosley actually on the farm taught me to gallop and then I worked for Richard Delp for a while and I went down to Florida for a couple of years and then I married my husband and I thought I better just not leave for four months a year so but it was good. galloping was good to me and I really enjoyed it and I got a lot of skills for riding and so when it's hard to get somebody to get on a horse that one of the horses I had was five and she was running backwards and flipping over because she was given to a 12-year-old girl at the age of three off the backstretch. And it wasn't the horse's fault. And so we took her and we turned her around. But it took two years to do what I probably could have done. She had a really good temperament. I could have probably done it in 30 days um, in the beginning. But when they get in the wrong hands, the people love them. And they keep trying, but they don't know what to do. And sometimes they make an even bigger mess, you know, and that's what she was. And now she's with somebody that really knows how, she's a hunter, hunter jumper, but they really know how to ride. Um, I have one right now that's getting straightened out and she wasn't doing that, but she was panicking and she did, the lady fell off of her and broke her neck. So now the horse has that on her resume and it's not her fault. She, um, is a very, I think this is what happens a lot. She is a very quiet, easygoing type of horse. So I think people give them to, they think it's going to work out because the horse is easygoing and quiet, but the horse still needs training to become a riding horse. And without the training, the person gets, what happened with her, from what I can see, the person gets scared, they start hanging on the reins, they start pulling because this horse was severely behind the bit and you couldn't put your legs on and send her back out to the bit so she'd come behind the bit if your hands followed her she was trapped and she panicked but if your hands didn't follow her you had no way to send her out to the bit so you've got to be a pretty good rider and a pretty calm person to fix that now I'm riding her and putting a correct mouth on her and then eventually she will be rehomed but again, it's going to take me a lot longer. But every one of them that is rehomed is an ambassador for the thoroughbred. It's a reason to get one or a reason to never get one. And having these horses out there that are problems are not helping our cause. 
and and almost always it's not their their fault. It you know if they if they get good training, but people don't pay a lot of money for them, so they're not prepared to pay a lot of money because you know you got a problem horse, you're going to be paying somebody a lot of money to fix it, and it's going to take a long time. Um, so I take them where I can. I don't have a ton of funding, but I usually have one or two horses here, and I'm not getting any younger, so I'm 57 now. I don't know how much longer I'm going to be able to take horses with training issues and turn them around, but I'm going to do it as long as I can because we really need this, and I try to share things I learn. I try to write. I'm working on another book, and it's exactly about that is is training problems and how to fix them and 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 the lack of understanding so many people don't understand fundamental things like how horses think how they process and just coming at a problem with the right tools in your brain is is a tremendous help but as far as funding tpr the taa is a great benefactor of our work um but it's never enough because horses are expensive and what i've done in the last year and a half, I've started to take some horses that people are paying me to, to train. But it's in keeping with our mission because most of the time it's horses that they're having major training problems and it's just someone with, with the, the means to pay me and the money goes directly to TPR so that I'm turning around a horse and taking a horse that was difficult and demonstrating to wherever the horse goes it's usually a boarding barn somewhere and people see that it wasn't the horse because we turn them around straighten them out and send them back so and it's a way to bring in money for the queenies of the world because i can take her and afford to keep her by taking other horses and being paid to retrain them and that's that's becoming a major source of our of our funding but again I'm 57. I don't know how many how many more years I'll be able to do that, but it has before I started doing that, I was starting to worry how long I was going to be able to do this because it is really difficult fundraising enough money. Horses are expensive, enough money to do this. And I have been very lucky. I have one benefactor who has has supported this work for years. Um, and I'm not going to say his name because I don't know if he wants people to know. But then, and then there's my husband who never owned a racehorse, who donates the use of this beautiful farm, and he's also been known to stroke a check for a surgery or something a horse needs. And you know, without him, none of it would happen. So, you know, and thank God he loves horses. He's scared of them, but he loves them. He'll feed him a piece of candy. That's about it. <laughs> Quickly getting back about fellow again, because he, I don't know if you noticed, but he keeps drawing in closer to you. He, he just wants to be where you are by the looks of it. He How loves long did people. He, uh, but that's, that's obviously But that's a thoroughbred yeah. thing because, you know, there's a lot of stuff people say about the way horses are handled at the racetrack. But the truth is they're handled by lots of different people who are really good at what they do and who aren't afraid of them and they end up being people people even though they're horses they love people and he does probably love people more than most because if he's <laughs> out in the field with other horses he will come over to you he will right. come and hang with people yeah because um, he's just hanging out with us here and really enjoying sort of just you know being in the vicinity how long did it take for you to train him up to a precinct george level because that's that is not an easy feat. That is an well, incredible accomplishment. He came here when he was four and a half, and he had about six months of training. And the only thing he was really good at was spooking. And I mean, he was really good. You know, thoroughbred, really yeah. quick on their feet. Um, but look, there's a rock. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Most of the time, I, I can't tell you what he was spooking at. But I believe him. Something was there. But, And it was really irritating, I will tell you, because, like, for years like especially like at training and first level he was not easy and i mean you could be going down the long side and end up at x which is the middle of the arena in like one blink of an eye and they don't give extra credit for extra movements <laughs> so, so you know but he was very talented and 
what I'm told by upper level people who know better, because I've never taken a horse this far, um, the talented ones are difficult at the lower levels because there's so much horse and so much athleticism. And I'm not talking about thoroughbreds here, a really talented horse usually or many times would be very difficult at lower levels, which was true of him. We got to fourth level and he started being easier to ride and, and it's kind of a funny aside, but fourth three, fourth level three, people hate that test. And I would say to people, I know it's hard to believe, but fourth level three is so much easier to ride on him than fourth level one. Because fourth level three, you're basically in a movement and setting him up for the next movement. And I cheated. Well, not really cheated, but I I did not understand canter pirouette. It took me a long time to understand and be able to ride it. He could do it, but in my brain, it just it just didn't resonate. But the flying changes came right after the canter pirouette. And in fourth level three, you do it every third stride. So when we were at fourth level three, I only did threes. I didn't do fours. I didn't do twos. I did threes because I wasn't good enough to ride a good canter pirouette. And in the second pirouette, you had to be setting them up for the threes. You can't like just turn and go, okay, do threes. So, so since I couldn't do it, I just rode threes, and when I turned him on the corner, he was going to do threes. I didn't have to say, you know, those are important points. Because um, in dressage, everything is everything is judged. So, um, so yeah. But when we moved up to, to pre-St. George, it was a problem because then you have to go across the diagonal and do fours, and then the next diagonal do threes. You know, I'm still, I've never gone this far, but he does twos and he does ones and i just want to point out i've never done any of those before so i think it's more magnificent that he does them and he's so consistent um the biggest problem with him was controlling his changes because he figured more is better so you know and they don't give extra credit so he when we only needed one change sometimes he would give me five one tempies and you know then you get a three and you feel like you should get a 10 because your 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 fourth level horse can do one one tempies that are clean, uh, but you got to only do one. But it's a good problem to have. Mm, for sure. Do you want to walk over with me and tell me about the mare that started all of this? Yes. But they'll be out in this field. Yeah. So. You said she earned about eighty-five thousand on yeah, the track. Yeah, about eighty-five thousand. Retired completely sound. Uh, he's helping us. He's leading the way. Yes, he is. Gracie and Punky are out. So what was her racing name? Her, her racing name was Clouds Honor. Clouds Honor. She, she, she's looking at us. The other one is 32. I've had him since he was three. But she, um, she my poor husband, naive husband, I was galloping horses at the racetrack. And the only horse I owned was Punky. And I had a farm where we broke babies. And Punky was there, he was the pony. We used him as a pony. And my husband, God bless him, naive soul, he thought I should have a horse. So we went to the Fasig Tipton sale in Timonium. And he actually bought me two horses. He bought me her. And he bought another horse called Trick of the Tail who was chestnut and he had four white socks and he um, was beautiful and of course my husband thought that was going to be the racehorse and he was smaller so he got to the races sooner and he was just <laughs> the worst he liked it he was happy um, but I ran him twice and I think he probably got beat over a hundred lengths between the two oh. races but he loved it but he became an eventer, a three-day eventer. Somebody, I, ga I gave him to somebody. He was only two, and he would, you know, needed to be three. She kept growing, so she didn't get to the races until she was three. And she just was a consistent runner. She, I'll cry again, she always tried. She just always tried, and I was so grateful. And she loved it. And she was a really good, 
really good racehorse. I galloped her, I rubbed her, I did everything but ride her in races. And um, Chip Van Hassel was her primary rider, and he said, you know, my girlfriend asked me why I like riding her so much. And he said, she always tries. And I did run her in over her head because I did not want her to be claimed. And because I loved her. I mean, I galloped her every day and, you know, I just wanted to keep her and, and it's hard to keep. But she was like just a tad under being an allowance horse. But she did um, go through all of her allowance conditions, you know, but... Um, you know, and she retired sound and she told me I would hate to be a show horse. I did train her as a show horse. She's a magnificent mover, but she really hated it. I was getting busy doing this kind of work now and I just finally said, you know, I'm not going to, you know, make this horse. Plus, she was quite unpleasant. Everything that made her a great racehorse didn't, you know, she hated being a show horse or riding horse. It made her unpleasant and I just, she doesn't owe me anything. So she just stays here and keeps Punky. Punky's devoted to her. He gets upset if he's separated and he's he's 32 and he's the only one that can stand her because she's kind of nasty to other horses. So so it all works out in the end. They, oh, he adores her. He adores her. I think she's the only reason he's alive because she'll just canter away and be like, come on, old man, hurry up. You know, she has no <laughs> sympathy for him whatsoever, but it keeps him moving, keeps him alive. So, but she's 20, which, unbelievable, she's 20. But my husband bought her, she was a yearling, and the woman had actually rescued her. She was in a field by herself starving. She'd been weaned from her mother, and the woman wanted to keep her, and she actually did a lot of horse rescue. And I think she was in Pennsylvania then. She's in New York now. But she was so strong and so much horse. She's like, I just can't handle it. She, she's not going to be a riding horse, which was true. She was right. Um, and so she put her in the Fasig Tipton sale. And when um, I bought her, she was crying. And people around her were like, don't worry about it. Kim Clark bought your horse. It's going to be fine. And that's so great, though. I know that's, it's yeah, a compliment to me. Yeah, it was really absolutely. nice. But when she was running at Philadelphia, I entered her at Philadelphia and I was sitting in the receiving barn. Lisa called me and she really started. She was my mentor, um, ended up being my mentor because I didn't know Gracie's story. I call her Gracie. I didn't know it then. And she told me her story and um how she you know how she rescued her and then she just sort of kept in contact and i didn't realize it but i think she was grooming me to rescue horses <laughs> she sneaked up on me but she did win that day at philadelphia park too which so was really nice fund tpr yeah most of her most of her earnings went to helping other horses and i wasn't doing it formally then i was just doing it but i was good at it so I, it started taking more and more of my time and I could do it because I didn't need to go break a bunch of babies to, you know you have to like when you ride you ride in the morning you go to farms and you you ride and and that's how you make your living but because and I will say because now I was with my husband so I didn't have to I wasn't on as unstable ground as I had had been because he's he's a normal person with normal <laughs> income and normal life but you know and that really helps but um, most of her money went to TPR. And it was actually when she retired that I was like, well, I have to decide, do I want to keep doing this or go back to, you know, breaking babies and training and doing all the other stuff. And it was like a drug. So I just kept doing the doing the rescue work. But she was, you know, her retirement was what Chris, I turned right around and went and got some horse that was starving. My husband's like, what are you doing? The cash cow's retired. And I'm like, you'll understand. And the horse was so skinny. He was, he never said another word and he helped, he helped finance, finance that too. So, but no, she, I don't know what she would think. Cause she doesn't really like other horses. I don't think, I don't know what she'd think that all her money went to helping other horses, but that's pretty much where most of it went.
So how many horses have you retrained and rehomed? Um, in the beginning, yeah, I should have given you that number. Because it, I didn't plan any of this. I just took, I'd bring them here. I'd, I'd get on them, do a walk, track, canter video. I'd take a headshot and a body shot. And I'd put them on a web page that I had was myownracehorse.com in the beginning and I was actually trying to promote my training business and breaking business but I did only had dial up so to upload pictures to like different sites like dream horse took too long so I just made a page you know that was actually the reason well back then people thought that they were fire breathing dragons and people didn't bring them from the race I didn't know this I didn't know what people on the outside did but the fact that I was riding them, oh my gosh, she's riding the fire-breathing dragon. I like the first five of them that I had, I placed them and I sold them for like between $800 and $2,500 in five days. And I was bewildered. I went back to the racetrack and, you know, I was at Bowie Training Center. I'm like, does anybody have a horse they want to, because I got all these people calling me and it just snowballed people found out and i was helping my friends at the racetrack finding good homes for horses and it just started taking over so the first year i placed 100 horses off the back stretch then i got they were all people in racing okay i had Lu lucy mckinnon was over at laurel and she would started taking pictures and getting the descriptions at laurel and a lot of them i was placing from the back stretch because I could I didn't have any funding except for Gracie I was just doing it and it just grew and the second year I placed almost 150 horses and I did that for the first five years you know and that but then things started to change um, then it started to become people became aware and people started getting involved and the racing industry got involved and so things changed and at that point I had retired from galloping and um, I, I did think Gracie had one baby and I did think I was going to train him but by that time I was riding so many horses for people and, and ret actually retraining them that I ended up sending them to Diana McClure in Berryville and they have a training center, her and her husband, and they, they trained him and did a beautiful job and he's here now. And, and, and that's another thing in, in racing. Sometimes you hear about the things they do to the horses. My baby horse, he's 11 now, he would lick your face in the receiving barn. And when he came home, he was the same exact horse he was when he left. He just had a racing career under his belt and then I started retraining him he's a jumper um, and he gets put to the side a lot because if I'm tired or I run out of time he's the one that doesn't get ridden but he's so quiet and easy going he doesn't care he's the same horse every day so he doesn't have the temperament his his mother has thank God so how long have you been doing all of this with you said it's changed a lot after those first five years formally since 2008 but I'm gonna say like two years before that I mean I always did and I mean a lot of people are like this I galloped horses I would find homes for horses when I was galloping if I found out a horse needed a home but not on this formal and I didn't realize how many people wanted them because I always heard nobody wants them and when you're placing like one at a time okay but that doesn't show popularity. But when you put the face shot, the body shot, and you got on them, getting on them was a magic thing. And I didn't see how it was a big deal because I rode horses and galloped horses and trail road race horses. And Merriman would send them home to the farm and we'd be riding them around like trail horses. And then we'd gallop them and then they'd go back to the racetrack. So it was perfectly normal to me to ride them. On, and, and I think some people outside of racing it's better now don't realize that we ride them we trail ride them we do stuff with them and they're rideable they're just racehorses yeah i have to agree yeah well Tim, thank you so much i feel like you've given us a lot of your time already and wow incredible incredible story oh i've enjoyed this a lot i've enjoyed meeting you really fun
That's it for this week, guys. Talk racing to me with Naomi. Show 11 is in the books. I really don't feel like I have anything else to add. It was a bit of a different show. We covered what happened at Belmont with Tis the Law, hopefully going for that triple crown. I mean, yet to see, of course, if they like the way he's going, if he runs well in the Travers, and of course, how he performs in the Kentucky Derby. It's all up for grabs, but as Jack Knowlton mentioned, they're the only one with a horse that has a chance at the Triple Crown. So why not go for it? And I remember Jonathan Kinchin saying, you know, would they go for the Preakness? Or would it not be too close? They want to go for the Breeders' Cup Classic? Or, yeah, you know, that's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. <laughs> I wish I would ask him now. I'll definitely go and ask Jack next time I see him, which should be pretty shortly three weeks turnaround until we get to saratoga we should be um doing well there i hope so guys like i've always said before and i keep meaning it stay healthy stay safe look after each other and uh you know keep rocking it listening to this podcast i love having you guys here and please contact me as well i really really like hearing from you all and even if you just have anything that you would love to hear on here or you want my opinion on i'll make sure to not incriminate myself when i give my full opinion because sometimes i tend to be a little bit opinionated so uh there we are guys uh, see you next week 